And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Ryan Oliver. And I'm Chris Thomas. Hey Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing good, man. Uh, pretty uh, hyped up. Uh, had had a, a chance to go through and, and sort of uh, rewatch segments of each of these movies to sort of remind myself, and they're all uh, very high energy, uh, very much got you on the edge of your seat. So I'm I'm looking forward to kind of carrying that into the re- recording today. I am as well, and hopefully our listeners will be on the edge of their seats as well, um, <laughs> or they'll be running for the exits like the characters in this movie. Hopefully these movies, not yeah, Please yeah. Stay. I, 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 yeah, please listen. Please stay. So uh, this week, it's Chris's picks. Uh, we're discussing the theme is Strangers in a Strange Land. These are uh, like siege horror movies, siege adjacent. Uh, they have an element in which characters find themselves trapped in a place and they have to try and get their way out of it. So I will just kick it over to you to introduce the picks and sort of why you chose them. And of course, we'll get into the, the first movie we're discussing. Of course, yeah. Uh, we were discussing since we've been going on our uh, multi-episode sort of arc of the King Kong uh, Godzilla movies. Uh, I wanted to take something uh, much smaller, uh, a bit more intimate look, and so I thought uh, something that's in the siege movie genre would probably be something cool to cover. So, um, like you said, I went with Strangers in a Strange Land, and for those three movies, I picked uh, Green Room from 2015, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. Uh, Hostel from 2005, directed by Eli Roth, and From Dusk Till Dawn, directed by Robert Rodriguez, or who you very lovingly referred to as Bob Rod, uh, who I will refer to him as Bob Rod for the remainder of this episode. Yes, henceforth, um, and probably not even just in this episode, probably in life, you know, maybe when he, whenever he has a new movie out, just like, hey, Bob Rod's got a new movie it's out. Bob Rod. So, Bob Rod. Um, yeah, I, so... <clears throat> it was great watching these movies again. Uh, not so great for, for one of them, but I think there's a lot of things when going over them. I mean, I picked them very surface level. It had been a few years since I'd seen each of them, and so it was good to revisit them for a number of reasons. But, you know, um, the, the very surface level of it's people going to an area that they're unfamiliar with, and then through plot circumstances, they end up in a very precarious, dangerous situation, and they need to get out. And so then it was really easy to relate them for the episode, but then upon watching them, there are so many elements across all three of the movies that are very closely related. Of course, um, sort of the uh, a tourship of each of the uh, creators who, who made them, uh, especially with Green Room and Hostel being written and directed by the same person. Um, and then, you know, you could argue with Quentin Tarantino being the screenwriter of Dust Till Dawn and also being in the movie and working so closely with Bob Rod, you can see his sort of signature rubbing off. It also kind of seems like a written and directed, uh, at least partially sort of situation. Um, but then also just 
the violence in each of the movies. Uh, they're, they're all uh, in the horror genre in one way or another, but they all approach the way that the graphic, graphic, uh, often disgusting violence on screen is portrayed. Um, and it's kind of an interesting sort of dichotomy to uh, talk about how they're going for very different things, um, but through the lens of let's just have blood splatter on the screen. Um, so I think uh, we can probably just kick it off by getting into the good um, and and discussing uh, Green Room and the elements therein that are related to the other movies, but the way that Green Room did it in a sort of... Um, its own sort of encapsulated, very tight, very intricate, and very grounded and realistic way that I don't think either of the other two uh, were going for, especially in the case of From Dust Till Dawn, was not going for realism. Um, but because of the way it sort of establishes itself, I think it's the only one that's um, truly scary, uh, to me at least, uh, what was truly uh, thrilling and really accomplished what it was going for. I, th- I would agree, and I think a good place to start would be with that analyzing the violence in, in all three movies. Sure. Um, but, but, I mean, specifically related to Green Room, um, because they all are all incredibly violent movies in their own way and for a different amount of purpose. And Green Room really takes the, I would say, that, that old adage of uh, it's a spice and not a stew. Um, because a green room is very economical. It's very tight, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And what it does with the what Jeremy Sonia does with the violence in that movie, it's not relishing in it. And that is okay. Like it's okay to relish in it, I guess. Like you know, because I think you and I, we both like horror movies. We both like extreme amounts of violence. We both have a very uh, f- hard fondness for practical effects and how cinematic violence can be beautiful. Um, but I think that that would have been the tone that Sonya strikes with this movie. It would have been all wrong for this movie, but the spasms of violence are brutal and probably even arguably brutal, more brutal here than even hostile and from dust till dawn. But it's because it's so sparse and because it's so jolting and because it's so attempting to be realistic and you're along with the ride with these characters, you're trapped in the room with these characters, you're in their perspective it's very claustrophobic and it's very unsettling like it's genuinely genuinely unsettling you're not supposed to be like hey look at this cool violent scene it's supposed to be like oh my god that's awful yeah and what it's i think it's meant to or at least for me it was very effective in establishing the stakes of the world Uh, oftentimes the violence on the screen, like you're saying, you know, uh, being a spice, it's there for flavor. And so it can be used for, you know, entertainment, of course. And we'll talk about that a lot when we get into uh, the other two movies. That the violence itself can be part of like a, it can elicit a cheer, it can elicit a groan or, or a scream from the audience. And I think in the way that Jeremy Saulnier has violence on screen here in Green Room, it's much more effective in showing how brutal and cold and unforgiving and uncaring the world is that our protagonists find themselves in um and i don't want to get into uh specifics quite yet we definitely will uh, i think right now uh if this is your first time listening to the show welcome but we will get into spoilers for each of these movies uh, highly encourage you to watch them um but we'll try and tiptoe them around them as much as possible uh, until we get deeper into the discussion of each one so um if you 
want to stick around, listen to the beginning of our discussion, uh, and then just know that later on we're going to start getting into specific scenes and shots and things that happen to characters. Um, but definitely go check these out for yourself. Uh, come back and, and uh, give the rest of it a listen. But I wanted to start by sort of giving an overview of the story of Green Room, and then we can get into the specific story beats and how it was successful in doing it. So... Uh, the synopsis that I ended up writing was uh, it, it's about an indie punk rock group that make an unscheduled stop at a neo-Nazi bar deep in the woods of northern Oregon. Uh, things go from bad to worse when they unwittingly, unwittingly witness a murder in the green room and must fight the invading skinheads to survive the night. Very, very short synopsis, but that basically encapsulates the whole movie. There's, of course, like layers and some interesting things that happen in there. But I think just that right there showing the the simplistic approach of, you know, people find themselves in a bad situation and the way that I referred to it when, when I was uh, watching it this most recent time is characters more or less sideswiped by a plot. You know, they were going about doing their own arc and then everything is derailed by this new element and we're here now. And um, I kind of love this storytelling device. I kind of love this subgenre of instead of the arc naturally flowing into the story that builds and builds and builds and builds. I love the idea of we're along this path and then no, we're not now we're here now that everything else is completely abandoned and we are in so much danger and stress that we have to get out of this situation and all of our previous worries are out the window. Absolutely. And I, I am a fan of this storytelling device as well. Um, and I think it's particularly done excellently here. Um, you know, just just because of um, it isn't just you're sort of witnessing as a like third party observer, you're a hundred percent in with the characters, and I love it here because it's so it's so matter of fact. Like it mm. isn't just like a like it, it, it's there's no. I'm trying to think of the right word. There's no sensationalism, which I know I kind of mentioned in the front. Like, like it's, they go and they perform their set, um, which is great. I I also, the other thing I love about this movie too, is even though it's incredibly economical and incredibly sparse, it gives a lot of like good textures to these characters. Like we don't know a ton about them, but we know enough about Mm -hmm. the personalities and we care enough about their plight so that when they witness this murder, which again, matter of fact. And the other thing I like about this movie and when movies like this do it well is they act exactly like you would probably act if this happened in real life. I mean, mm. I've never witnessed this happen in real life, so I don't know for sure. But like you can tell the difference between like a movie decision that characters are making versus a logical decision. Right. And this movie, it's like they see the murderer and instead of like thinking immediately that they need to fight off, one character grabs their phone immediately calls 911 like that's mm-hmm. the very very first thing that they do uh and it's it's uh, and then of course that's the inciting incident that gets them locked in in the first place right um and the other thing i like about this movie and i don't want to get too far into this because it's probably going to because it's going to relate i think to our next movie as well True. is there is a sort of like there's like minor like societal commentary textures here but it's also not the whole thing uh, i think that relates to hostels specifically as well mm-hmm. and when we get in a hostel i'll talk about those and how they are failed here but like especially like you know you say skinheads this is a neo-nazi bar um mm-hmm. you know this movie came out also in 2016 uh or at least 
hit the festivals 2015 come out 2016 we've seen the rise of like neo-nazis neo-fascisms more out in the world so like that alone is terrifying and makes this thing terrifying what also makes this more terrifying is they're smart largely in this movie because there's a tendency at least i have this to like write someone like that off is like completely uneducated and therefore that's where their hatred right that's where from. the anger is coming from yeah exactly yeah but like here in the, they're incredibly smart like that i think that's what's terrifying is like if you look at the side story with with uh they're not even the side story but you look at the those characters and you look at darcy uh the lead played by mm-hmm. patrick stewart a completely excellently. <laughs> excellently completely against type he's fantastic in this movie he's but scary he's very he's scary but the fact that it's like they're looking through their car to find ways to make it look like an accident. It's like they're not just going to dump them in the woods somewhere nonchalantly. Like they're actually planning because of that 911 call. They're like, okay, there's an alert to that there's a murder here. And right. that's like, that's another great texture too. It's like usually they try and like panic and cover that up. But mm-hmm. um, but I forgot the character's name, but Macon Blair's character grabs the phone and it's like, hi, yeah, yeah I was calling about a murder. Like they're mm-hmm. they're privy to that. Like... And he does it within earshot of the other characters, like to, to sort of, and it's glossed over. Like they, they don't do a lot of, so it, it Jeremy Saulnier, he did the same thing in, in Blue Ruin, not so much in Murder Party. Murder Party is its own sort of standalone thing. Um, but uh, he has this thing, he calls it the Clusterfuck Trilogy, which is Murder Party, Blue Ruin, and Green Room. And it's just about characters who get in over their heads and they don't quite know how to handle the situation. And then that's where the drama comes from, is that they're they're inept or they're ill-prepared and then everything falls to shit around them and they're just trying their best to keep their head above water which it does done very effectively in blue ruin again with macon blair in there he's excellent in that movie again as well but i think you sort of hit the nail on the head with the the way that this is done it could have definitely been a assault on precinct 13 style oh shit they know about the murder we need to get in there and it's just an all-out assault of them trying to stop a a roving gang of uh faceless uh enemies uh like a like a house of the dead uh style or area 51 like arcade shooter and they're just trying to keep them out but the way that these plots are sort of stacked on top of each other um to to sort of emphasize how fucked our main characters are in this situation and how threatening these people are but it's kept away from their eyes like our characters don't know that all this crazy organization is going on in the background he immediately goes outside and says i need this amount of money we need to find two people who are willing to talk to the cops and cover up the stabbing for us then i need 12 people who are red laces which are uh, skinheads who have killed somebody or killed somebody for the cause so they have like gotten a certain military rank like they're so organized and they know exactly what steps to take they need to get guard dogs uh we can't shoot them because we can't have bullets in the bodies we can stab them just try and not get them in the bones like they are on top of this shit and watching this amount of just evil and menace happen in such a structured way while cutting back to our characters who are flipping the fuck out in the green room not knowing what to do next is you're just constantly afraid for the main characters because they're like they are so fucked they are so beyond in any way capable of getting out of this and I, it, it sets the tension early and does not let up until the, the credits roll 
It doesn't, but I also love that juxtaposition as well because you do see that you know you see the organization behind the scenes of how they're going to do it versus everything that the the ain't rights the the punk band, um, you know they're making it up completely on the fly mm-hmm. and and occasionally I mean there's there's I, I, like I said I don't want to get into specific spasms of violence I think people should discover it for themselves sure um, but. I mean, they're incredibly scrappy, but then these these the bar owners are bested at from time to time, um, and so it's fascinating to watch some a group of people who are so highly organized and ones that are just fighting for their lives. It's sort of that just like that survival instinct mm-hmm. that kicks in, and that's what makes it fascinating. Is like these characters don't know, like okay, one of them knows like martial arts and has right. the big guy in the headlock for like a good portion of the movie. Um, but like that they don't know what to do and so they're just they're just natural instinct is kicking in and so watching Mm -hmm. someone with their backs completely against the wall versus somebody who has the upper hand and seeing that play out is incredibly unsettling and um not to detour too far from that but another aspect i love this about this movie in comparison to our other two is i love his approach to dialogue jeremy saunier like i love Mm -hmm. how he's his movies aren't like capital W written. Like they're very like, but they're they're but they're not like going for like that sort of like mumblecore naturalism either. Sure. There's, it's they're almost not like a wet... fully improv, but they feel as natural as improv. He, he, he as natural as improv and he uses the words for like purpose. Like the words enforce action. There's almost sure. like a western quality to the way that he writes dialogue, uh, I would argue. And yeah. I think that even becomes evident in the movie he made after this, uh, Hold the Dark, um mm-hmm. as well, which definitely has huge western vibes. Um, you know, I think of like the scene where uh, Big Justin, who's the one who's in the headlock, who's in the room with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they refer to the the band refers to bullets and he's like they're not called bullets they're called cartridges the bullet is in the cartridge and he's like one of these will blast through your fucking skull and blow it clean open and it's just like oh my god like (laughs) it's it's just very matter of fact and i love like i just love that versus like you know again different strokes for different folks it's like there's completely different ways to do it whereas you know we look at our other examples that we'll get into we have one that's like really is trying to go for kind of seemingly like that kind of mumblecore style and then one that is 125 percent capital w written written <laughs> written so, yes written so well and i i think also the there's a, a point in the movie and it's in, included in the trailer even where uh anton yelchin uh r.i.p um, dude i he, i not to interrupt you there but like i re-watching this i just made me so evident this is like god i i miss anton yelchin like yeah. he was really just getting started and it's man yeah, huge, and he was, huge bummer. He was incredible, and in basically yeah. everything that I saw him in, even in uh, uh, what was the one that he was he was in with? Uh, oh, is it Thoroughbreds? I was gonna say fucking yeah, Thoroughbreds. Yeah. That movie's great. Yeah, watch and, and, nothing to do with any of these movies other than it has Anton Yelchin. Anton Yelchin, go watch R.I.P. Man. Yeah, what <laughs> a great. what a shame, what a loss. Um, but he he has a, a, a little um. Uh, 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 monologue when they're doing the uh, interview in Portland with the, uh, the the punk rocker from the, the, the local radio station 
and he talks about like, well, you know, we don't like to release stuff on social media or anything like that because if you're going to go to a live music performance, you need to be there. It's natural. It's in the moment. It's something felt by everybody and shared by everybody. And that is like the tone of the movie is that like all of this violence and everything that's happening in is all in the moment. And mm-hmm. the, that's what the you as an audience are sharing watching this movie is is everything is it, all based on instinct. Nobody really has a plan. They're running to and fro, and that's juxtaposed with you know our our you know band of Nazis who are are coming after them, but them trying to the I I think I want to start getting into spoilers to yeah. sort of explain a bit of of the the uh, some of the meat and potatoes of the movie. But when they finally try and get out of the green room for the first time, uh, and it all goes to shit pretty much immediately, like you said, the the characters are making decisions that you know, as a, an audience viewer, it's pretty easy to be like, "What do you like? Why are you splitting up? And why are you doing this?" But like that, you know, cornered, caged animal, like response of like, "We're all gonna die if we split up. They can't get all of us. Maybe a couple of us get away." And I, the one of the characters even has a line there, where he's just like, "You know, maybe some of us will die. You know, maybe not. But like, fuck it. <laughs> like, what what yeah. are we gonna do?" Um, yeah, and it's of not course, like dumb horror <laughs> movie character. Yeah, but it's not dumb horror movie character decisions. It's right. not because like you know, I think you mentioned that in our um whodunit episode where it's not like hey per x person x hasn't been seen for a while so it's like okay we'll go out to find the person it's like oh yeah. okay cool hacked but only send like, one person to go find them and, exactly yeah. yeah no it's it's incredibly like I, I was gonna say calculated but not really but it's just, again caged animal instinct it's just mm. that's what they have to do they're like we're not going to get out of this like if we stay in this room we're gonna die if we leave right. this room some of us might not die. So we'll yeah, right. If we stay here, we're all fucked anyway. So take a shot. Maybe we'll get out of here. And just the fact that it, it doesn't go well for them. And like, they ultimately end up having to retreat back to the green room. But now with like less numbers is just another, like, okay, the stakes are higher. If they try that again, there's even fewer that are going to split up the crowd, but we know how serious and how deadly these Nazis are. Um, and I, I also just sort of love that while the these two stories are going on in tandem, there are revelations that sort of it, it uh, expands on the motives of the Nazis. Like, why wouldn't they just call the cops and have that one guy get arrested? Well, in the basement of the building, there's a hidden room where they're manufacturing drugs. Oh, okay, so they can't have cops snooping around. Um, why uh, was this girl murdered? Oh, well... Uh, previously uh, her and another Nazi that were in love there's some evidence that they were going to like turn the whole thing on its head so like they start dropping these seeds and, and nuggets along the way that sort of expand on things but the ultimate through line of the movie of just being about a, a band stuck in a very dire situation and being desperate to get out of it is the through line like if those elements were taken out of the movie the the real soul of the movie and and the thing that's very effective in carrying us all the way through wouldn't be lost and be just as effective but i love that uh sonia takes the time and he puts in the effort to expand on those things and flesh the world out a little bit more and i think it it moves it even further away from camp and further away from some of the movies that probably were his inspiration for this story 
Oh, yeah, especially, you know, you already mentioned Assault on Precinct 13, I think is definitely, like, the biggest inspiration here. Right. Um, but, again, I love that he goes a different way about it, and and with the other two movies that we're going to discuss, you know, the, the other two movies we're going to discuss are highly referential uh some more than others but they're very much like wearing their inspirations on their shoulders and sonye doesn't do that i mean it's very clearly he's inspired by movies like this that he's seen before but the fact that he takes his time to be like you know i'm gonna be i'm gonna take this idea um but then i'm gonna do it this way or i'm gonna take this one and i'm gonna do it this way like you said really expanding the world of this really makes it i think it makes it a better movie for it and it makes it stand out it isn't just a sort of like hey remember this movie i'm gonna make one like that it's right. it's like an actual like and it it really is like if you i mean if you want to get meta for a second like it really is the punk rock version of something like this really it's like sure. it's scrappy it's small um and similarly with the with the bands uh means to try and get out like it's scrappy it's on the fly um they're making truly indie go along yeah it's truly indie i mean we see that in you mentioned that moment in with anton yelson's character when he's doing the interview and he's like it's in that moment uh you know it's all on stage it's how you feel that and you could feel that scrappiness even like before they get into the green room and do that like one of my favorite scenes actually has nothing to do with violence it's when they first take the stage and he's like, hey, I got a dumb idea. And they do a cover of Nazi punks fuck off by uh, Dead Kennedys. Yeah. And like they're, you know, they're throwing beer bottles at their fucking like it's like beer bottle goes past their head. And, yeah. um, you know, all that shit. And the lead singer then goes, thank you. That was a cover <laughs> like very distinctly <laughs> like that for them makes it better. But it's it's funny. It's a funny joke. But then they proceed to play one of their songs. And then it's like a slow motion scene, and, and then they like the crowd slowly starts moving, and it I comes feel like back even, to their side, yeah, exactly. And so, well, like it really captures like that sort of like spontaneity, like the movie itself captures that spontaneity of music and that spontaneity of you could feel one thing one way and one way the other, uh, or uh, at a different moment. Um, and I think that's uh, and I think that's great. I, like again he he constructs this pretty much like a like a punk album for so to speak and it's yeah wonderful well and and even ultimately uh, when we get towards the end of the movie and uh anton yelchin has another uh uh monologue where he's talking about the paintball trip where yeah he's talking about mm-hmm. like you know we we're getting wiped out by these organized guys that we we're facing and so then it just took one of our guys to say, you know, fuck it and not play by, you know, the rules or, or, or play by what would be expected of him. And he ran out like a madman and they weren't expecting it. And they won. They wiped out the other team. And that's ultimately the sort of approach that they end up going here in, in the end of the movie is sort of this organized chaos. And so I, I think, yeah, I mean, there's just so many different layers and, and, and of the same concept of having a, a ragtag a band of people facing down a very organized, very serious threat, and and coming out on top. I mean, they they escape. A couple of them do. I don't know. They're not yeah. very good situation. When no, they they're both incredibly do. like fucked up and yeah. and hurt, and everyone else died. But I mean, like, yeah, two of them get out. Uh, it's Anton yeah. Yelchin and Imogen Poots's character. Um, who I think is also like to me one of the standouts in this movie as well. Yeah. Like just just the way that she, um, 
you know, just because she has, she's like their only help, really, because it's like they're scra- mm-hmm. they're scared for their lives. They're trapped like animals in that green room. She's been around them, so she's at least can see like, oh, they're doing this. Oh, they're doing that. Don't do that. That's probably not going to work. Don't do this. Um, I was happy to watch it this time with subtitles because there's that moment when the lights go out. She's like, careful now. And there's like mm-hmm. a whole like dialogue exchange that I remember seeing in the theater. And I love how just like, you know, he's he, like... Sonia has just such a faith in the audience to go with it that it's like you don't have to hear what's being said but like you understand what's happening but I remember I was like I don't think I heard exactly what was said and that you know it just skins goes with the cleverness she lights a cigarette and gives it to the yeah. big Justin and I love she's that like shot. if the cherry yeah if the cherry does something you don't like feel free to shoot it like right. <laughs> it's incredible it's it's great um well, there's this initial. I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned Imogen Poot's character it, because I love the dynamic between her and the rest of the group. Because mm-hmm. like she came into the bar with the the girl who was, was murdered, but she's a Nazi. Like she's one of them, or at least like kicked it with Nazis. Is someone who's cool being around Nazis, so she's a certain flavor of person. And there's an original, uh, an initial. Uh, uh, distrust with her, especially uh, between her and uh, Aaliyah uh, Shawkat. I, I can't remember mm-hmm. her her uh, character's name in the movie. Um, but she uh, initially, like whenever uh, Imogen Poots is like, well, maybe we should do this or whatever. She's, she's basically like, shut the fuck up. Like, we're not going to listen to you. Why would we take your advice? Which to me makes sense. I mean, from a character standpoint, it's just like, uh, we're under siege by Nazis. You're a Nazi. You don't get a vote. Like, we're not going to listen to anything that you have to fucking say. And as far as I know, they, that never gets reconciled between them. Like, the, the no. entire time, really, they're, she generally doesn't trust her until she bites it. Um, but I love that idea of introducing these characters and not spending, like, a whole lot of time having... Um, set pieces where trust is slowly gained over the course of the movie, it feels extremely organic that by the time the movie's over, they both just recognize that we are desperate people in a desperate situation. They're obviously trying to kill us both. We just got to do whatever we got to do to get out of here. It's great. And because, like, we never do. I mean, you make a good point. Like, say they don't trust her and don't listen to her, but uh, which, again, makes complete sense. But we never know for sure. And I think the movie's better for it, like, exactly what her story is. We know she's probably a little column A, little column B from the standpoint. It's like she's clearly been around these people and knows. So that calls a lot of things into question. But also, she was very quick to uh, slice the big guy open with a box cutter. So oh, yeah. clearly. So clearly she's in a situation, too, where it's like she doesn't want to be here or she's by whatever happenstance. And so, um, you know, so that it's fascinating of just like, okay, we're all here. We're all fucked. Right. So maybe we just figure it out. (laughs) We just have to kind of figure it out. Well, and she's also clearly blindsided by the plot of this girl being killed. And when they're discovering along with her, like this song um, in the set list is like a a cue for them to leave. Like she... Mm -hmm either didn't know that or didn't reveal it. it, it it's it, when, when they finally find it, she's like, Oh, okay. That's, that's a song that was in their set list. That would have been their cue to like take off. But like, it, again, it's another thing where like, there is a story here. And if you want to pay attention to the story, it's going to enrich the world. It's going to make the world feel more grounded, more believable and more understandable for these characters. But it's not, it's not, um, it's not essential 
to the the overall horror and the and like the tense situation like that's going to continue whether or not you want to learn anything about it it's just going to enhance your experience by fleshing these characters out and fleshing the world out and it's it's pretty unique in the way that the story is told really absolutely i i could not could not agree with you more um I, I think we talked about this off mic. I at least wanted to mention it here that uh, we were talking about how if in the event that say we were strapped for time in talking about all these movies, both of us were like, we probably don't have to rewatch it. Uh, this was a movie when we still lived in the same city, we went and saw together. And like, I still very much have the memory of this movie burned into my brain. Like I yeah. probably could have said everything that I just talked about without having to rewatch it. Oh yeah. Um, but I'm very fortunate that we did because it's just a really great movie. And I think, um, you know, I just, I like Jeremy Sawney as a talent. I think like Blue Ruin was my first introduction to his work, um, which I think his, you know, you, you said like, what do you say? Like uh clusterfuck trilogy? Yeah, the clusterfuck trilogy. It. Yeah, because yeah, I think he also said in an interview, which is pretty apt because when I first saw Blue Ruin, I immediately thought of um, Blood Simple, the, the Coen Brothers debut movie. Oh, yeah. And his pitch of Blue Ruin was, it's no country for old men, but with a dipshit was basically how he described it. And it's a pretty accurate description of that movie yeah um but i would recommend going back and checking out blue ruin and murder party it's murder party is more kind of fun silly kind yeah. of like horror comedy but like it's it's fun and then um i know hold the dark got a lot of mixed responses but uh, i was quite a big fan of that movie and that's yeah. a netflix movie so they're, yeah. they're all pretty available readily available yeah yeah well, I think so if we the wanted next to, we're talking about. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. <laughs> speaking of uh, very unique styles of storytelling and uh, likable, fleshed out, believable characters, let's talk about the complete opposite and get into Eli Roth's Hostel. Um, oh boy, do we have to? Well, I and I'm really. We talked about this leading up to today's episode because we were kind of texting back and forth as we were catching up and rewatching these movies. I'm pretty excited about talking about the next two movies. Because I, we don't um, we don't really have like opposite ends of the spectrum on our uh, opinions of these movies, but I know that we received each of them very differently, and that uh, speaking of hostile, this could get a little tense. So um, <laughs> Eli Roth's Hostel. I'm just going to get into my written synopsis of it, um, and, and, which I wrote uh, three men, which originally I had written assholes and decided to take that out. But three men backpacking through Europe are told of a fabled city in Slovakia where foreigners are greeted with all of the sex they could imagine. Upon arriving, however, they find themselves the unwitting targets of a shadowy organization that captures tourists for their murder vacationists. Um, again, pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, it could have been uh, compiled into a short film. Um cruelly and much like uh, what they do to the characters on screen in the movie they torture the audience by dragging it out into a feature uh, and so then we had to sit through and watch the entire thing <laughs> and I know I'm flipping a lot of shit at it I obviously didn't like this movie as as much as you did on a rewatch um, so I think I kind of want to give you an opportunity to explain yourself uh, well no and I, I'm glad you did because I should because I usually and, and I try not to talk too much about like personal feelings about filmmakers you know we, we try to make it about the films sure. but i usually just hate eli roth like i really like just both as a individual as a personality as well as his, as his movies um they are not for me um 
But upon rewatching it, and I, I want to stress at least, I don't think this is a good movie. Sure. I, I do at least want to stress that. I, you, you picked it as a bad, and when you said that, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm really not looking forward to rewatching Hostel. I have not seen this since 2005, um, since it hit DVD. So it's been almost 16 years since I've seen this movie. Um, and so I had an incredibly, given the, the work of Eli Ross that I had seen post-Hostel, I had an incredibly low bar going into this movie and you right out the gate. I mean, you are right. Like at the start, like these three characters are incredibly insufferable. Like they're, they're like, I mean, two Americans and one Icelandic gentleman and they're, they're in Amsterdam. I mean, it's, it starts like Euro trip basically mm-hmm. like, like a, a, a you know, because, it, and there's no like inklings of horror. And that's kind of when I was talking about green room, and I talked about like mumblecore way of writing mm-hmm. like this almost feels like that in a way where it's like it, it's natural and it's natural because these characters are douchebags, at least at the start. So it's like there's a lot of like dude bro talk. There's a lot of derogatory homo language yeah. in the book, which like at least are in like they had to add in a couple more slurs that in, in yes. post that was just like, really? <laughs> and it And it makes matters worse by the fact that it's like. I think Eli Roth, like, is one of these guys, like, given what I've seen in interviews and, like, director's commentaries, like, this is language that he used, um, you know, I know he talked about that in, in the Cabin Fever, uh, director's commentary, like, like, this just, he identifies as one of these guys, and I think that makes it even harder, Mm because you're just like, you are this, like, kind of, like, frat bro type of guy. Right. Um, but where I came into not hating the movie, because I think in the middle chunk of the movie, I thought there were two avenues. This movie presented two avenues in which when the torture did happen, it might've actually functioned as something, whether a critique, whether a texture, whatever the case may be. I thought it was leaning towards something. Cause at the first third of this movie, I was like, man, fuck this. I'm not into this movie at all. Like these characters are total jerks. But then when it seems like it's either going to be like an indictment on entitled American <laughs> douchebaggery. Yeah. Like, because we've seen this, we've seen this played even completely straight, like, like in a movie like Euro trip, um, sure. Where it's like they go to Europe and just fuck shit up and they get away with it. Well, it's culture um, clash, which, I mean, yeah. Eli Roth does, he sort of... I, I haven't watched uh, really anything outside of Cabin Fever uh, or Hostel and then uh, his Thanksgiving trailer. But I'm familiar with his other things like uh, The Green Inferno, where it's all about people going into some other culture and carrying over their own uh, culture into it and just sort of rejecting the norms of that society. And then, of course they get hit with backlash yes and it always seems like it, it's like i've been full it's like fool me once shame on you but fool me twice like it's it can't like, get fooled like I've, again. Been fooled, I've been fooled again because it seems like and green inferno is this way too where it's like it seems like it's actually going to be commenting on something but then it just reverts to pretty like typical xenophobia and then like it renders that moot but then there's like the texture with um with the character of josh where like and that's where like we mentioned all that homophobic language that's used in the beginning of the movie there's inklings that he may be closeted like there there's a lot of like aspects of that movie and that character actually 
starts to develop an arc. And so it's like, okay, now I have an entry point. Now I have something to where I may be understanding the reasoning behind that earlier in the movie. And that might come into play maybe like a la like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, where like that movie, you know, of course that oh, movie's yeah. an allegory for coming out. Um, like I thought that could play into that. But then, and then that character's ultimately kind of dispatched pretty like unceremoniously and it loses that thread too. Right. But credit where credit is due... So I was starting to, I wouldn't say get on the movie's wavelength, but I was starting to at least find potential entry points and then it disregards said entry points. But then when it gets into the last leg of the movie, which is clearly like that sort of relentless and like, I would say like first Texas Chainsaw Massacre inspired by just how like disorienting and descent into hell it is. Right. Um, I was actually impressed. Like I was actually like. I see why you caught Quentin Tarantino's eye in the first place. And that's another thing we should note about this movie. You know, of course, we're going to get into From Dust Till Dawn, of which he's heavily involved. But Quentin Tarantino was the executive producer on this movie. I mean, I remember that. His name is on the poster and the DVD. I remember mm-hmm. this very vividly. His name is in bigger font and bigger uh, letters than oh, yeah. Eli Ross' name is. Like, he he was the draw that got this movie seen by people. Um, and so... He has a short cameo. And, and, yeah, he does. And the other thing, too, is like like the, the Eli Roth stuff after this movie, by and large, is like grating and annoying in the way that he can be. But it's also like not particularly well made. Like Green Inferno looks like shit. Like it looks like somebody <laughs> forgot how to make a movie. And so like the final third of this movie, I was like, oh, I see you did once know how to do this. Like you did once have a formal rigor behind the camera. Yeah. And so I was able to enjoy that as like an isolated piece of the movie. And because my sort of annoyance and hatred for the first third had been shed away by the second third where I'm trying to pick it apart. And then in the final leg, those themes are abandoned, but it's a pretty well constructed piece. I just wish I cared about anything that's happening in it. Right. And so that's the, biggest problem for me with hostile where it's like there's a there's a certain theme park element to it but diametrically opposed to something like green room you don't care about any of these characters and i don't think the the movie attempts with one of them but then it never attempts to and easily the most infuriating annoying character consistently through the movie uh which is uh paxton played by jay hernandez is our final guy he's the one our protagonist who, who like in any other movie of this ilk he would have been killed like first or second like there's no way he would have carried this out because he doesn't have he doesn't have an arc he jumps tracks at one point because like he after he's like kidnapped and he uh finds his way out of the it's not the hostel isn't where they're actually doing the killings the hostel is just how they suck you in but. it's the front for how they get people uh, yeah, yeah, it's like an abandoned warehouse or something. But like when he, when which he, we learn more about those inner workings in part two as well, right? Which you ended up watching afterwards, and I didn't. I didn't do, but it does add some perspective to that side of the story. Which I think of of the things in in this movie, I I kind of like that it's a shadowy organization. That it's more or less, it feels sort of ragtag. Uh, and it doesn't need to be too intricate. Like the, it's a big conspiracy. It's like oh, we kidnap tourists, and then people pay money to murder them. Um, 
that's our thing. Like, it, I don't think it really needs to be any more complicated than that. But um, th- th- there's the scene that after he like escapes and he's getting out, and then he hears um, that uh, the woman screaming from you know the depths of where he just escaped from, uh, and uh, I think it's uh, is it Yuki uh, that he mm-hmm. turns around to go back and save. Um, but like up until this point. Uh, his character, really all the characters except for Josh, who starts to have an arc and then they unceremoniously kill him, which just pisses me off. Um, that he has not had anything likable about him whatsoever, other than he, I guess, cares about his friend. Like that's the only thing that you can say. Where it's just like, oh, he's not a, a complete sociopath. That's a nice character trait. Um, he, he then turns around <laughs> to go back and, and save her. Which is like, he's had no reason to do this. He has not shown an, an inkling of heroism in his bones this entire movie. He's just been uh, a, a sexist, homophobic fucking asshole to everybody he has crossed paths with. And then now you want me to root for this guy to be the fucking hero? I'd rather he could strap back in the chair. Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> and that's that's always my problem with Eli Roth, is like he just can't carry an idea through. Like, that that's always been an issue. Um, it's just like he has these things that he wants to convey but he just can't get out of his own way enough and then he's like okay well i want to have like a giddy gory like finale it's like okay cool that's great but you need to earn that first and that's always been a huge huge problem uh to me with his movies where it's like when it gets into you know when it gets into the splatter sometimes that splatter can be done incredibly well but i'm like but what am i what what's the purpose what am i watching this for and um, I wonder how much of that and, is a de- in like indifference to the movies that he's trying to emulate, that he's trying to basically redo of these like grindhouse things where he's just like, well, I have to include these portions and I have to crank them to 11 because it's a modernization of it. So then he has half-baked story ideas kind of just silly puttied onto gory set pieces that to him have to be in the movie. He's <laughs> shooting himself in the foot, in my opinion. Because of these movies that he loves, as you mentioned, it's like because he loves these old sleazy grindhouse movies. Like I, I it'll be burned in my brain forever because one of my favorites is unfortunately his favorite, uh, which is the movie Pieces. His quote is on the back of the grindhouse releasing um, Blu-ray of the movie. Um, so it's like he loves all these old sleazy exploitation movies, and it's like I get that. I love those movies too. Sure, but because he's trying to emulate it he's like it's almost like an excuse in a way he's like oh yeah but these other movies were like sleazy so my movie can be sleazy too and it's like it can but like usually those movies have like a if not a purpose there's like a a sort of like uh transgressiveness to them and i feel like roth's like i I don't know he's just not a deft enough filmmaker to be pushing any buttons Mm -hmm. like i feel like he thinks he's pushing buttons or he thinks he's clever more clever than he actually is and that he's trying to like sort of upend the expectations of what you think of these movies but in doing so it's like i don't know it's just not that interesting to me no um you know it's like it's just fabricated it's like fabricated sleaze and it's like most sleazy movies to me kind of come from a natural place for better or worse you know where it's like he's just trying to make that and it's like you can't you you can't just like the, that's mostly achieved by accident like somebody went out to make their movie and they may not have been the most sound of mind but it got captured on celluloid and that's what we've seen whereas right. like eli ross like i like these movies and i want to make one where it's like mm, I, i'd rather you i can't believe i'm about to say what i want to say i'd rather you just do you instead of try to do that just do you whatever 
sick shits in your mind. And I'll like that to me, that couldn't be, it couldn't be less interesting than what we see. Um, you know, I will say briefly, you know, like I said, I, I did watch part two, uh, after this, I had not seen it before. And to your point, I agree. You don't need an expansion on the world, but I, I, you see the perspective, you see dual perspectives of another set of tourists coming into the hostel, but you also see the perspective of a high bidder for killing those tourists. So you see the other side of that because once you've in this movie, once you've played your hand, what else can you do other than just do it again? Right. And so it does at least expand it. And it actually has an ending that, uh, is surprisingly, uh, subversive and did not see it coming so i still wouldn't recommend the movie but i'm like oh okay you actually pulled something out like (laughs) this time out um but it's like to this it's like it's almost so muted you know where it's like i feel like it would have been better had it had other elements of horror spliced into it like I, i think the like, like I've been saying, not to, I keep, I feel like I'm going long-winded. I'm sorry because this is your pick, but it's like I feel like even though the final third of the movie, as an isolated piece of like genre filmmaking, is solid at least. Sure. It just, I just feel like you, there's no reason to have tilted that. You know what I mean? Like you could have had the moment sparse through the movie, and it's like I guess they do because they do cut to like the surgeon who's who's whistling what sounds like the 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 kill bill. Uh, whistle which is in turn from i forgot the movie but it's from another movie because that's tarantino yeah um for you um and that's another thing when we talked about green room talking about these movies it's like this one's not as like egregiously referential but it is like there are moments you know like that they're trying to find yeah. their like they're trying to find their Icelandic friend and they're leaving notes at the concierge at the hotel and the notes is the the key to the hotel room that they're doing it is 237 nudge nudge wink wink um there's also a cameo by takashi miike when Mm -hmm. they first get to the uh the hostel there's also there's a cameo in the second one by uh edwick finnage who's in your vice's locked room and only i have the key and you know just the, the great giallo actress um so it's like it's very clear what movies he loves and what movies he's trying to emulate by well, pulp either, fiction's like, showing on the tv it. too in the, yeah in the lobby. yeah i forgot about that yeah you're They're right. watch, just watching pulp fiction when they walk in and then um I, I saw this this is not an original thought but i saw it mentioned online the when he is escaping the hostel and he's in the car and the van moves out of the way and then the antagonists are there in the road and they like lock eyes is lifted from pulp fiction like that mm-hmm. straight up happened with bruce willis and ving rames in that movie so like there's some subtle and some non-subtle things that happen throughout there that, like like we're saying, he shows deference to these movies that he loves. Um, I just, in my opinion, it's 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 hurtful to the overall yeah. product. I think it's hurtful to the product, and I think that he he's never good. He's also never been good at tone either, um, which, like, um, not to quote, in an interview from another critic to another filmmaker, but I always, um, I, one of my favorite writers is, um, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. And anytime he's ever been on the film spotting podcast, he talks about an interview he had with the, the Coen brothers and Joel Cohen had, had told him once that, that a director's job is boiled down to two words, which is tone management. Um, you could obviously see that from the Coen brothers because they have a very specific tone. And if it was done out of key in any way it would probably fall completely flat 
and Roth has never had a grasp of tone. Like he never knows if he's making a straightforward horror movie. He never knows if he's making like a drama or a dark comedy. Um, and the elements are just, they're always just butting heads with one another. Yeah. They always are. I mean, like the, there are moments of like what I think is supposed to be dark comedy. In fact, I, I fairly certain, I mean like the first, the person who got the highest bid to kill Jay Hernandez's character who slips, on a fucking hand and cuts himself with a chainsaw. Like that's supposed cuts to be his whole leg that's off. supposed to be a good Yeah. Which oh, is yeah. like it's... your leg was made of paper mache. How did to... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's supposed so to be like... bone in there. Exactly. And again, from a pr- practical gore perspective, um, and not to put the cart before the horse, we should also mention Greg Nicotero did the effects for both this and from Dust Till Dawn, which we're gonna swing into here shortly. All that's great, but it's just like that's supposed to be a joke. But it's just like, what is the joke? I don't get what the joke. Like, where is it coming from? It's just he's never been able to wrangle any sort of tone. Like, there's no tone that he didn't like, and so he's just like, we're just gonna do it this way because I want to. And well, and most it, of his comedy just, is like sophomoric, like with uh, yeah. the Icelandic character oh, yeah. uh, Ollie, who's like in the the beginning part of the movie. He, he's like. Uh, drawing a like a cartoon face on his ass and showing it to people, or like pulling his dick out, and and it's like very like like high school kid type yeah. humor of him running around and like just being very like sexually aggressive to people, uh, and, and it's like really strange. And then he gets killed in the movie, and then like you said, like the attempts at comedy beyond that are trying to go down a dark comedic line, which is a completely different tone of comedy. But like you were trying, like if you're already trying to juxtapose like high school level uh, dick and balls jokes as your comedy against this gritty, uh, violent, bloody underworld. And then you remove the the main uh, valve of that sophomoric comedy and then try and insert comedy into what was supposed to be the other side of the coin. Then what the, f- what is happening? I don't know what's supposed to be funny and what's supposed to be horror. And like, I think you even said this where like, if he was doing any of this on purpose, it might be considered genius. But I don't get the I don't get the sense that any of this is on purpose. A lot of it feels like it's on accident. And like I I was telling you there's a scene uh where when they first arrive in the town and they go to the hostel and they go up to the front desk um and there's uh, the receptionist or whatever and she's like, "Oh, you're the king of swing. Okay, I'll get your um, I'll get your key. She turns around to grab it from the thing behind her. And the camera, like, the, there's no cutaway or anything. The camera just does sort of a creepy, leering uh, shot where it does a slow tilt down towards her ass and then goes back up as she turns around to hand him the key. And there's no there's no cutaway. This isn't shot from the perspective of a character. It's, you know, the omniscient camera that's by itself off to the side of our character's Almost as if the camera guy checked out the actress and they just left it in. And it's such a weird throwaway, uh, creepy sexual shot that is not mimicked by any other shots. Like the rest of the movie just has boobs and stuff in it. Like it's it's Mm -hmm. it's as overtly sexual as it can be. There's just this one shot and I don't it rubbed me the wrong way in, in so many different wrong ways. I don't know. I felt like gross. But after watching that scene, I was just like. If he did that on purpose to make me feel that way, that's a genius thing to do as a filmmaker. Like sort of like peeping Tom or something like that. But I don't think he did that on purpose. I think it no, was I don't think so. Him and the creepy camera operator being like, Yeah, get a shot of her ass when she turns around. 
Yeah, I've I've felt less uncomfortable watching like Joe D'Amato movies than I have like <laughs> Eli Roth movies. I mean that that really goes to show you like how how just how sleazy he is. And again, I think he that and I think that's just him. Like I really just think that's him as a personality, and I think that he uses that as an excuse to do those things in his movies because he's like I'm mimicking these movies, right? And it's like it's not an excuse, man. I right. don't know. I just it doesn't work. But I think. I, I, I like I said I think there's some directorial flair here and there's some attempts at stuff and that's why I didn't like hate the movie um, but I still don't think it's a good movie it doesn't all come together and really I mean this in the sec and you know kind of the direction the second one takes I feel like this is probably the best he has to offer based on what I've seen of his movies. And there's still like, I don't like star ratings, but just to simplify it and make it easy. Uh, it, there's still two to two and a half out of five movies to me. And it's like, if that's your best, like that's not great. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a couple movies of his I haven't seen. I haven't seen knock knock. I haven't seen um, the house with the clock in its walls. I mean, that's a kid's movie. So that's right. probably vastly different. I'm sure there's no lingering, uh, pervy camera shots. Some lecherous. I'd be, I'd be very concerned. Yeah, the, 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 that's a different style of movie entirely. Black. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but but from what I've seen, I've just I've never been fully impressed. Never been really on board um, his movies, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of weird contradictory statements here. But I guess I was really really not looking forward to this rewatch and and in many ways i'm still not happy about it but i found more i found more to discuss with it as evident by this conversation we yeah. just had than i then i was anticipating i thought it was going to be an incredibly short like man fuck this movie and then move on to the next thing but um there was there was a little bit more yeah uh, than i expected but it's still not a good movie and if you didn't like it when you saw it or you're you know similar about us i'd it's not going to change your mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. I <laughs> so, felt very much little... the same as you did. I, there's much more there to chew on than I had like recalled when, when I watched it years and years ago. Um, and I think why I ended up more in the I hate this uh, realm than you did is because I recognized a lot of those things as well. The interesting ideas that he's uh, trying and he's pretty much failing at like there are some some like you said that final third of the movie that's just the straight up horror element there's a pretty decent little thriller horror movie uh that that's in there that's underneath like the sort of the rubble that you have to dig to uh there um a lot of the practical effects uh like greg nicotero it's very well done um but then there's more restraint than you would think based off of you know the reputation of this movie where a lot of the stuff does happen off screen and you're more or less just sort of shown the aftermath or it's hinted at what is happening and so like letting your imagination do the work which is you know great to do in these types of movies you're always going to imagine a worst case scenario than they're possibly going to be able to show you um I liked the juxtaposition of uh, when they're running down sort of the red light district of Amsterdam and looking in the windows on all these like naked women and sort of judging them and talking about them. Cut to this underground facility where he's going past all these doors, seeing all these different forms of torture, showing like it's sort of like this is the red light district of violence. Like there's some interesting ideas that happen there, but I think just because everything about it is so despicable and he is approaching it with the same mindset of uh, uh these 
filmmakers quote unquote of the 70s like you said pieces if you watch some of the, like behind the scenes and stuff of those guys from the 70s who they are like very vocally leering at their uh, female actresses in the movies and saying some like overtly creepy lecherous shit those are not the dudes to emulate <laughs> like you shouldn't be approaching the movie with sort of the mindset of uh, somebody who's going to sexually assault uh, a person on their set yeah, it's probably not what you <laughs> bad, should do at all. Bad baseline. Bad, <laughs> bad baseline, exactly. So it just, yeah. Um, well, I guess um, maybe to go back, back slightly, a couple points in that conversation to Mr. Tarantino um, from Dust Till Dawn from 1996, um, directed by Robert Rodriguez, Bob Rod, as we affectionately <laughs> call him. Um, Written by Quentin Tarantino based on a script from Robert Kurtzman, who's a special effects artist himself. Um, so this is the what. So I will kick it over to you. Um, I think if people are familiar with this movie, they probably already have an inkling as to why this is chosen as the what. But I will let you take it away. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much flatly chose this one as the what because if... If you are familiar with this movie, but you know somebody who is not and they have not seen this movie watch it with them um, because you'll, you'll pretty much guaranteed get a what reaction out of them. Um, so, I mean, if you don't know, I'll just read the synopsis. Um, so uh, after springing his murderous brother, Richard played by Quentin Tarantino from jail, Seth Gecko played by George Clooney flees to Mexico. Along the way, they pick up a hapless family, which is played by Harvey Keitel uh, at all uh, who they are able to successfully exploit to make it across the border. Now seemingly free, they stop at a remote desert dive bar to have a to have a celebratory drink and wait out the night. However, things aren't what they seem, as the nocturnal oasis is owned and operated by vampires bent on draining their patrons before the dawn. Um, I know that you walked away from this movie uh, reviling it. I think you called it. Uh, I think you called it. Trash, purulent trash, I think was the, the phrase that you used in your review. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, yeah, I yeah, I just, every time, because I've talked about this, I talked on this on, on the podcast over under movies that I co-hosted back in the day. Um, you know, I think we've talked about it at length. I know we, we had a buddy in college who's a huge Robert Rodriguez fan, so I think I probably watched it at least a time or two there and every time i watch it i'm like okay this is the time i'm finally going to understand why people like from dust till dawn and every time i do it, it i i don't and then it, it seemingly gets worse <laughs> every time like it just ah uh, this movie so you know we talked about green room and we talked about jeremy saunier and how he incorporates his influences in a way that's a little bit more subtle or like he's more just taking inspiration from things and remixing them in, in, in a way in a way that's not like obvious and mm -hmm. just even if it's obvious that doesn't automatically make it bad but like to the detriment sure. i mean like we know green room is pulling from assault on precinct 13 like we know that if you've seen that you know that that uh we know from dust till dawn is too but just in case you didn't uh ernest Liu, who plays scott fuller the the son of uh, harvey keitel in this movie uh is wearing a shirt that says precinct 13 throughout the movie so that's the kind of like sophomore fuckery we're dealing with in this movie so yeah um i mean the movie yeah and, and i know you why you chose it for a what because it is definitely as far it's polarizing. as polarizing 
it's polarizing and it, and it it fits the subgenre that you're talking about here like not just siege movie but the one in which your side's wiped maybe like the most extreme example because right. you know notoriously this movie starts out especially more like a Quentin Tarantino movie yeah. like we have we have criminals we have like pop culture banter uh like i referred to earlier it is capital w written in the first half of the movie in oh, particular yeah. Um, and so it feels like it's a crime, you know, it's a crime movie for the first half of the movie and then it becomes a siege movie with vampires. And so it's probably the most extreme genre flip example. And, you know, I, but, but for me, I guess it's the polarizing aspect to people in this movie is usually the genre flip. Mm -hmm. To me, I just find this movie grating and annoying from the start. I mean, starting with, look, I, I love a lot of quentin tarantino's movies um and and there's as him as a director i don't think there's any i think are bad like quote unquote bad i don't think he's done a bad movie i don't think he's capable of doing that he's done ones i'm not as fond of but i really wish he would stop casting himself i i i he's a horrible actor like even at least written lines if he wants to yeah, hitchcock his thing. way in the background of a set or something sure or like cool. you know inglorious bastards he's one of the dead nazi soldiers who gets scalped Fine. perfect great 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 but like even movies that i just revere and have seen a million times like reservoir dogs and pulp fiction it's just like i hate his performance in both those movies and it's not long fortunately but it's more significant than it should be and, like, so I want to at least lay that out here that, like, I don't even like him in those movies. And I think those movies are, like, nearly flawless movies. Sure. Um, but he has way too significant of a role in this movie. And, again, he plays, like, his the, the brother, uh, his brother is, is a, like, complete, you know, psychopath, sexual offender. Um, that's sort of, like, the butting heads with him and his brother played by George Clooney. Like, George Clooney is the actual, like, smart, calculated criminal, you know, to the point where it's like, you know, I am a professional thief. I think this is his line. He's like, I'm a professional thief. I don't kill people who I don't have to. Right. I will do it. I will not hesitate to pull the trigger if I have to, but I'm not going to do it for the glee of it. Whereas, right. like, Tarantino's character is a murderer. Is, is is completely horrible like you know and, and well and what actually is... insane like there there's that yeah. point in the movie where uh, uh he I, I can't remember oh they're in the hotel room after he takes the family the hostage hostage yeah and like there's the scene with juliette lewis uh and her very weird and uncomfortable lines that he says but like he his character fully believes that she's like asking him to like do sexual stuff with her and even asks her about it later. So he's like he's broken. He's mentally gone. He's yeah. bonkers. Well, I mean there's a scene where like they well, I was thinking even the the hotel when they take the first hostage from the uh, yeah. liquor store hold up, which is just like completely reprehensible and George Clooney comes back with a bag of food from Big Kahuna Burger, oh. nudge nudge wink wink, <laughs> um comes through the door and and that's the other fucking i hate the style of this movie too like the thing is tarantino usually you know obviously he loves his own words that no one loves the man's work more than himself uh you know yes. he's very full of himself um but he usually credit where credit's due he recognizes a good thing when he has it like he knows how a scene should play out and knows how to maximize it maximize is that even a word uh, maximize it to its fullest potential like he knows 
like I mean, just because given the films that he's studied, even though he can be completely overt in his references, but it's like he's obviously a huge fan of like Leone and spaghetti westerns, and so like you see scenes like the the uh like the shootout in Pulp Fiction, uh, or like the scene with uh with Sam Jackson and and uh, John Travolta and how that builds the opening of Inglorious Bastards. Oh yeah, um, you know the whole two thirds of the Hateful Eight. Like he just he knows how to draw exactly the right amount of tension from the screen right rodriguez just can't calm the fuck down enough to let a scene play out and that's Mm -hmm. another problem like i think even i don't know if i'd like this movie better if tarantino directed it but i don't think it would be worse but like rodriguez just can't let like after the opening scene which i will grant give credit is the best scene in the movie the the liquor store scene is about the, the the tension that you would expect from like Tarantino and Michael Parks comes in to talk to John Hawks and you know the camera just slowly dollies over to see that the that the Gecko brothers with the hostage are over there um that scene is done like incredibly well until it gets into super annoying like snap zooms of the the safe being unlocked but yeah but like anyway I'm getting sidetracked when they come back to the hotel and it's the reaction shot of the Gecko brothers and George Clooney's just sitting there just basically like you know what did i do like is it is it me like basically doing exactly what we're saying about tarantino's character where it's like what the fuck is wrong with you basically right. but that the, the, he splices in that like edit that like yeah fight club-esque like edit of like the aftermath of the body and it's just like you don't need to do that it's like it's like you said we get Hostel, it where it's like we get it we're we your mind can think of something insanely more horrendous you could have just let that play out and the thing is, like, especially in, like, lower, you know, early, tar- lower budget, early Tarantino movies, he probably would have let that play out. Or maybe he would show a reverse shot at the end of it, potentially. But it's, Or just like, something out of exactly. focus, like, over the shoulder or something. That it, like, the, the splicing cuts really bothered me, too. I, when I was reading up on this uh, before the episode, I was surprised to see that Tony Scott was considered to uh, direct this at one point. Which I mean, not totally unfounded, given that he directed True Romance, right. which Tarantino also wrote. Which True Romance is great. I love, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, especially because that's an example of a movie where, like, yeah, you look, at, you look at Clarence Worley played by Christian Slater in that movie. He's basically playing Quentin Tarantino. Like he's like video store uh, at the movies talking about going to a Sunny Shiba triple feature. Right. Where it's like if if Tarantino had made that movie, like that would have been so probably like indulgent, and he probably would have cast himself to be honest in yeah. that role. And so it's like you know, Scott was probably actually the right hand to do that. Um, so I see why Tony Scott would have done this. It would have been a better movie if Tony right. Scott directed it. You know, and I I'm not even like. R.I.P. But like I'm not even I wasn't even like the biggest Tony Scott fan, but like would have been better. And yeah. especially because he always has that like scorched sunset smoky look in like the Bruckheimer Simpson productions would have fit uh, the uh, probably the, the Mexico scenes in this movie. I was curious to see what the sort of timeline was for when the script was written, because I'm so much of it when you're like talking about the, the spliced cuts in there. Cause I know Tony Scott does that. He has some strange like editing style that he has, especially in transitions and stuff. Um, but then also like the scorched, really uh, yellow tinted color correction that he does on his movies. Um, a lot of this feels like it was meant to be put in the hands of Tony Scott. A lot of it feels like so much up his alley that 
they they I mean defaulted to Rodriguez because of the relationship that Tarantino and Rodriguez had being the sort of indie darlings of the 90s uh, and, and their breakout movies uh, breakout low budget movies from that era that it kind of naturally fell into his hands but uh, there's stuff that you can see in behind the scenes footage and whatnot where Quentin Tarantino seems to be directing himself when he's on camera and so they're is like this push pull um which it seems like there was just some bad ideas that ran into there like quentin tarantino probably should not have been cast in the movie um if he's going to be cast in the movie let the guy that you hired as a director direct you like there's like this weird mix of quentin tarantino's vision and the stuff that's recognizably bob rod um clooney is you know doing his best i think clooney is great in this movie honestly mm-hmm. uh which, i think him and Kaitel are the, like the the standouts yeah of um, course for what the first half of the movie calls for um because they they lend it that gravitas and they lend it the weight to make it count so at least like i'll give it credit when the flip happens instead of like it's mostly just a free-for-all whatever nothing matters but because Kaitel and Clooney have at least sold their roles enough to where it's like okay you actually kind of care what happens to those characters at the end of the movie right um because we've at least you know we've at least established like especially think of the scene in the uh motorhome like where where like um he's asking Clooney's asking Kaitel questions about like, you know, like about your past. And it's like, you used to be a pastor. Why are you not a pastor anymore? Oh, well, cause my wife died and I'm having a crisis of faith. And you know, like those moments, they're like, those are the quiet moments. And like this movie needed more quiet moments yes. because, because it just, especially when it gets to the, the titty twister, the, which is another, like, that's the thing also about Rodriguez. Like he's, he isn't as like, he's definitely not as like, overtly he doesn't seem as overtly sleazy as like eli roth for example but like he has that same like juvenilia and i think that runs through pretty much all of his movies at least his r-rated movies maybe even i don't haven't seen spy kids in a while um but they're kids movies so there's probably some juvenilia in there as well maybe not i don't know uh people liked those movies i don't i didn't even like them when i was a kid but it's um but it's like they get it to the shady twister and like from there it's just like everything's cranked to 11 i mean even starting with uh you know because then it becomes definitely the like grindhouse throwback of like you know you have uh you have just say you have cheech marin given the dialogue of like we got stinky pussy we got all this like just his his pussy pussy monologue yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly so we have that but you also have cheech marin playing three or four different characters in the movie much like uh, a movie from that time um you know we of course have small bits from tom savini and fred williamson so it's like we have familiar faces of the movies yeah of the grindhouse era that robert rodriguez is always trying to emulate um and just with a bigger budget um Well, and it's interesting. It's really odd because I'm, I'm glad, like the comparison to uh, Hostel is so overt of uh, two Quentin Tarantino proteges who have equally sophomoric, uh, immature approaches to a horror genre, but where Hostel flirted and tried to do some highbrow ideas through the lens of Grindhouse sleaze. Robert Rodriguez, especially in the latter half of the movie, jettisons all pretense of this trying to be high art. And it's just like, we're at the titty twister. Um, and 
we again have just overt sexuality of just naked women all over the place who are stripping and doing their thing but you know they're of course all vampires and so they're attracting their prey to ultimately drain them of blood and it just goes so balls to the wall off course i mean the the stuff in the latter half of the movie that i don't like is the dramatic stuff when they try to recall back to hey do you remember when this was a drama movie when we were trying to trying to set up serious characters and like Harvey Keitel being like, you got to promise me that when I turn, you'll kill me. And I'm just like, no, shut the fuck up. No, you lost all pretense of me taking this movie seriously as soon as you went to a club called the Titty Twister and you had a three and a half minute long monologue about pussy. We're not in that movie anymore. We're in a completely different fucking world. (laughs) Where Quentin Tarantino drinks whiskey off Salma Hayek's foot as well. Which Which he wrote in the script and it's, it's... unsubstantiated well not i wouldn't say unsubstantiated i think there's plenty of evidence but it's unconfirmed by the man himself it's a well-known rumor that he has a foot fetish it's uh, in all of his movies there's always bare feet even for the point of like bare feet don't even have to be into it one, one thing i noticed on this watch is when uh we talked about the the woman who's taken from the liquor store earlier on that that uh hostage he gets in the bed and he tells her to take her shoes off before she gets in the bed but he's in the bed himself and he's still wearing his shoes so he makes an extra point of making like you get barefoot before you join me into the bed and oh hey salma hayek you want to come put your bare foot in my mouth and pour some whiskey down it it's just like quentin dude buddy you gotta you gotta see somebody you gotta look <laughs> <laughs> and not not for the not for the fetish but not for, no, for, no no but no for, like yeah, say, help, no there's yeah. there, there's no kink shaming here but it's, it's just the sheer like it's the sheer unease of like that's a it's sleazy to seem that it's like did, did you write that in the movie just so you could do that right like that that's what it calls into question it isn't that the man has a foot fetish it's that Hey man, you can fetish what you want just don't hurt nobody but then yeah when you're when you're putting your actresses into sexually explicit situations for your benefit and your amusement that's you're taking advantage of them and that's not cool exactly um but i i want to bounce off your point about how you're in it for the ride in the in the last half of the movie oh yeah i think that's i think that's a spot where you and i differ uh i think it sounds like you're on the ride for the the vampire movie and that's totally like obviously very cool i just to, to me it's like i need something and so it's like those little moments because even in the first half the drama half it's like there aren't enough of those moments and so it's like i understand your point from the standpoint of like you lost all pretenses of being a serious movie but i'm just like i need something i need something to ground it because then it's just silly string you know it's what i hate about like the kingsman movies for example oh, okay. where it's just like if it's just like sheer like just like nothing like if there's nothing to root like i just little something it's like they killed john wick's dog okay done got it cool and yeah you know like i just i need i need that little little bit of humanity um especially in a movie like this where it's like or just make the grindhouse movies that you want to make you know what i mean like i i don't love planet terror but i at least like enjoy that movie much more than this one from the standpoint of like we're just i'm just making a balls to the wall bloody horror movie right that that's like a like a that's like a uh, exploitation throwback and it's like okay cool that's good like i think the fact that this has the guise of being something more and then 
it flips, which is cool. But then, like, I don't think the action is particularly well done in here. Um, to me, I think there's a couple, like, clever clever gags in the movie. Um, you know, of course, going with the Juvenalia. Uh, fucking Thomas, Tom Savini's character is named Sex Machine, Sex. Who, who's got a, a belt buckle uh, that's a pistol. Uh, the completely phallic pistol belt buckle. Um, and I, I think that's the thing. It's like, just like, those are the jokes that Rodriguez goes for. And, and this is like a different, it's funny. And, and, uh, how like, I usually don't go for his movies. This is like a completely different, similar reason. Cause most of his movies are juvenile, but like a different reason where I don't like his later movies because it's like, he's still doing the thing that got him noticed for El Mariachi where he's still writing, directing, uh, DP, uh, uh, editor compose like he's still doing the one man band thing at his studio and it's like you don't have to do that now man like it's cool that you did it and El Mariachi is a solid movie I like that movie mm-hmm. genuinely do like it um, but it's like, you don't have to do that anymore it's like you could hire a crew it's right like, why are you doing this and make it, make a better movie and like you have to know that you would make a better movie if you had other artisans doing this yeah exactly and it's really telling too because to, to, to even to put my opinion aside on this movie because it is i know i'm i'm definitely in the minority because a lot of people do like this movie um it's a little polarizing as you mentioned but i think more people like it than don't but if i had to put my opinion aside i do think it's really telling you know speaking to robert rodriguez as a filmmaker that it's seemingly his most liked movies by and large are like with a another like known creative like it mm. is like like they're actually like a collaboration like here with quentin tarantino uh well i mean grindhouse with tarantino sin city with both tarantino and frank miller who did that comic book series uh which for the record sin city is great the first one i love i love sin city it's actually probably the one rubber Rodriguez movie where i'll totally go to bat for um and then most recently alita battle angel which people really liked and it's uh co-written and produced by james cameron and if you see that movie it looks and walks and talks like a james cameron movie more mm-hmm. than a robert rodriguez movie so it's it's weird where it's like he does his thing but it's really telling that it's like the movies that people really really like of his are with a very other like auteur filmmaker or creative stylist yeah where it sort of like rubs off and, and you can see the inspiration there and i wonder how much of that is him being you know, a one-man band or attempting to be a one-man band, like, he can only do so much. And so then he has to, the collaboration needs to be a bit wider than if he were to just, you know, take pointers or whatever. He needs to concede a lot of the vision of the movie to the person he's collaborating with, and then you get a bit more of that bleed over. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's, I mean, and the thing is, too, I mean, auteur theory and auteurship is often overrated. You know, I, I think, like, we... I, there's certain auteur filmmakers I love clearly, but I think like it takes so many people to make a movie that I think we do put a lot of stock in that and don't think about that. Um, but again, it is a fascinating thought because Rodriguez, I, I, I don't know how people like classify him auteur, not auteur, it doesn't really matter, but he does have like a, a, he does have a distinct style. It's just that distinct style is usually kind of crummy. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, like outside of Sin City, cause he like, especially like, um, and it's been a while since I've seen the Spy Kids movies, so I can't really speak to those, but I, you know, but I could speak to something like, like the Machete movies and, uh, he did a movie called Shorts, which was another kids movie. Um, he did, or like Shark Boy and Lava Girl, like all oh, yeah. that, like crap 
Like, it just, it looks terrible. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm genuinely shocked, and especially because Sin City has that same sort of green screen style, but it's done so well. I mean, probably just, just they, they did the art direction perfectly. Mm-hmm. For, and having Frank Miller there to, like, oversee it, and he has yeah, such a strong like, hey, vision in the original graphic novel. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just like, Rodriguez is clearly not a... Like, he clearly knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Like, he clearly is knows how to make a movie. He clearly, like, can bring one to the finish line. It's just so often than not, it just feels... I don't know. Most of the movies feel lazy. But I'll give credit to this. I'll give credit from Dust Till Dawn. As much as it grinds my gears, I don't think this movie's lazy by any stretch of the word. No. Like, yeah, I don't like it. It annoys me, but it's not lazy. <laughs> and I, I can understand that. I mean, like, I I think the, the, the disconnect might be that I'm not... In the first half of the movie with the Gecko brothers trying to make it to Mexico and they got the family in tow that feels like a pseudo Tarantino movie. Like there's enough Tarantino mm-hmm. there, but like you said, it doesn't have it doesn't have a look or a feel of a Tarantino movie. Like Sally Menke was not cutting this thing. Like it, it doesn't No. It, it it's completely different. A blender so, was cutting this thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well because of that, it it feels like a Tarantino knockoff and Tarantino knockoff movies aren't I, mean, I wouldn't say 100% of the time, but most of the time aren't very fun. Like, you can't quite... That's why Tarantino is a sort of standout um, in, in in the film world, is that he has a very distinctive way of doing it, and he's very adept at doing it. So then when you try and copy it and you fail, it's a bummer of a movie. So I'm not too invested in the first half of the movie, which is why when they get to... When they show up at the Titty Twister, the tone... Like, before they've even revealed the vampires, the tone is flipped. On its head, and they're they're walking into a Star Wars cantina, of sex machine and these these just weird characters all around, and huge neon lights, fire, shooting yeah, it's from the a top it's a goddamn place. circus, yeah. and it's just like this went from trying to do like a gritty, grounded crime thriller to being a cartoon, so like you're already sort of off kilter, offset, like what is going on here, and then when it flips into vampires. That's why for me, I just go, okay, buckle up. We're just, whatever, we're on a roller coaster now. And fuck anything else that happens here. And I'm a sucker for practical effects. So to have horror legend, practical effect legend, Tom Savini with the dick gun running around splattering heads and like like stabbing disembodied hearts and like things exploding into goo and fire. I'm just like, fuck it. It's a, it's a hyper-violent yeah. Saturday morning cartoon cool i can do this for 40 minutes that's fine <laughs> yeah no and i think i think that's totally valid i think that's completely i'm glad that you enjoy that and i think i mean i'll give credit too i think the practicals here again nicotero did did the effects here um are solid the cgi is terrible um i didn't see it in 1996 though so maybe it was good then could be a spawn really thing again now. yeah 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 it could be another spawn thing who knows who knows who knows um but I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that would be my last point, and you you really kind of led me into it, so I appreciate that. Of like the Tarantino knockoffs is of course a good thing to bring up, and I think that's what frustrates me is because the man himself wrote this, and it feels like a subpar, like it feels like a Suicide Kings or a Things mm-hmm. to Do in Denver when you're dead, and less like a Pulp Fiction and a Reservoir Dogs when the man himself wrote it. So it just it feels like. You know, again, it feels more like a passing project to kind of bring it back around for Robert Kurtzman. Right. Who who he's like, I have this idea where a crime movie becomes a vampire movie, but I'm not a screenwriter. You're a screenwriter. So it just feels like it feels like something he slapped together in an afternoon 
um, you know, screenplay wise, um, and his name got it sold, which, you know, credit where credit's due, but it just, yeah, it just, it feels the, the writing feels passionless where it's like, that's usually the biggest strength from Tarantino, even if he's not directing it. Um, I guess unless it's natural born killers where I think that is that movie. I think he got a story by because Oliver Stone changed so, so much, much it, yeah. of what the script was. Um, I, well, I think he got his name removed from the posters too. He was just like, that's not, that's not what I wrote. I yeah. don't want to be associated whereas, with it. Whereas true romance really is like, even though it's Scott, like visually, you know, you, you, you watch that movie and you're like, I know who wrote this movie. Right. Like, there's no bones about it. So, um, but yeah, um, do you have any other thoughts on this before we wrap it up? Um, I, I don't. I mean, I think it, the, in comparison of the three movies, I think this is probably one of the more interesting ones that we kind of like fell into, or, or just like accidentally backpedaled into. Uh, again, you know, coming from just the basic concept of you know uh, people being trapped in a location that is unfamiliar to them, and then just running into the Tarantino protege uh, versus really uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Saulnier, who to me is able to take these concepts um, that Tarantino back in the nineties was taking and turning into uh, an homage to the pulp novels and grindhouse movies of yesteryear that he grew up on, like his junk food and really able to elevate that concept into being something higher. And I think of a, um, a more mature uh, quality uh, and film than probably we've seen come out of Tarantino. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty interested to sort of uh, see that juxtaposition uh, and uh, also interested to not ever have to watch Hostel again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the best thing to, if we learn anything from this dissection, it's that <laughs> no one should ever have to watch Hostel again um, ever. <laughs> Or any Eli Roth movie, but I guess he's doing a Borderlands movie. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh no. Uh, but speaking of that, I think that's a perfect segue to talk about next week's episode, um, which usually would be uh, it would usually be my pick. Um, but Chris is getting a second go around the horn because we accidentally fell backwards into something uh, that was on our Google spreadsheet of episodes from the very beginning, but it ties into a new movie. Um, so next week, actually, you know what? I'm not going to steal your thunder. Chris, what are we talking about next week? Uh, yeah. So like you said, uh, related to, um, a new movie coming out to the, uh, Mortal Kombat, uh, newest reboot, C-boot, uh, pre-boot. Uh, I have no idea where it is chronologically. Um, but the new Mortal Kombat movie is coming out. So we're going to back up and talk about, uh, fighting game movie adaptations, uh, which, will be fun but probably less fun than the games uh yeah most likely and you know what's surprising you know if you're not privy you might be like did you find three fighting game adaptations there's surprisingly a lot yeah um there's there's a lot i'm genuinely shocked at how many there are so we're gonna dive into that and then probably sometime after that we'll probably do another minisode on on the new mortal Kombat movie uh since it'll be in theaters and hbo max on april 16th when the fighting game episode will drop so uh catch that 
All right, let's go ahead and wrap this up. As always, you can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many other podcatchers. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thegoodbadwhat. Uh, You can email us at thegoodthebadthewhat at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, or if you just want to say hello. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations will go back into the show, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies that we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our music comes from Paco. Sorry. And our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud link you can find in the show notes, respectively. Uh, Chris, where can people find you individually online? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're so inclined, you can find me on Twitter at thocristo89. You could find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Ryolli90. That's R-Y-O-L-L-I-E 90. And yeah, we'll be back next week with fighting game adaptations leading up to the new Mortal Kombat. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Kisses. <laughs>